chapter 2, verses 14 through 40. Well, what I want to do from this passage of Scripture today, and we'll be looking pretty much at the entire sermon of Peter, what I want to do from this passage of Scripture today is again show you essentially this great point, this theme, or doctrine we might say. And it's this. Apart from the empowering ministry of the Spirit of God, the Church of Jesus Christ cannot perform her task and function in this world. That's how necessary, that's how absolutely vital this ministry of the Spirit of God is to the people of God. Without the empowering of the Spirit of God, you and I are helpless in this world. But with the Spirit of God, no matter what seems to be against the people of God, there is a message that shall go forth victoriously. You see why? Because it's this whole idea that God is now empowering His people to do the very thing that He has called them to do. And so I hope by the grace of God to to open this up to you. And the way that I want to do it is essentially this. I want to kind of interact with you about the, the the very theme or the very idea of Pentecost in and of itself. I want to give you some information by way of what Pentecost was as an Old Testament feast. But I also want you to see and understand what Pentecost is by way of this, this dispensation of the Christian church, by way of this coming into this present age, that the Spirit of God, while He always existed, the Spirit of God, while He was always active among the people of God, the Spirit of God, while He was always saving sinners, is now in this present age present in such a way that He was not in the past. And in this present age, there is an ongoing and abiding empowerment of the Spirit of God that ought to be the mark of the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, you see, to to see a church spiritually weak, to see a church uh, 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 feeble because because of no dependence on the Spirit of God, it's a sad thing. But let the Spirit of God fill the people of God. Let the Spirit of God have His way in the church and see the purposes of God come to pass. And so may God enable us to see that today. By way, of this, uh, by way of this point, this doctrine, as I said, uh, uh, concerning the importance of the, the ministry of the Spirit of God in the life of the church, I would pose to you, in, in order to show you the importance of this doctrine, I would pose to you a number of questions. Consider these with me. What would the church of Jesus Christ be without divine power? What could the church of Jesus Christ have accomplished in history? Or what, it could, or what could it accomplish today without the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, by way of this question... And the answer to this question is not much. The church would not be able to do much. You take a look at who God has brought into the church. Not many wise, not many mighty after the flesh. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the weak, uh, to, to confound the mighty, and the weak things of the, uh, uh, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak to confound the mighty. But God accomplishes his, ta- his task. You've heard me preach of this in the past. How many times has the church of Jesus Christ been in a low ebb and it looked as though there was no hope for the church? But God is continually be is continue, is continually faithful, and His purposes continue to carry out. Or oh, you see this empowering ministry of the Spirit of God. Would we would we ever be able to make Christ known in a compelling way? And could we teach the nations or bring sinners into contact with the saving power of God apart from the ministry of the Spirit of God? And again, the answer is no, we could not. Thirdly, the church of Jesus Christ has never had many of the mighty or the wise of this world. And yet look at the impact of Christ, that Christ's church has had in history. Why is this? It is because of the Holy Spirit's present and ongoing ministry. Well, lastly, how can we accomplish anything for God in the world today? 
It is only through that same indwelling and empowering Spirit of God who came to the church on that first day of Pentecost. So may God enable us to take a look at this passage of Scripture and learn much from it. Well, again, this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 2 opens up. I have to admit, uh, just by way of the sound of it, I, I do like the King James here, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. No real significance in that. It just means that it, the day of Pentecost was there. Uh, but there is something by way of that sound. Now Pentecost is fully come. And what do we see here? Well, first of all, we have to understand Pentecost. What was it? What is it? Well, Pentecost is one of the, one of the great feasts of Old Testament Israel. It was one of the three primary feasts uh, uh, that Israel had to observe. Uh, each and every year, the uh, males from throughout the world would come and gather in Jerusalem. And that's what happened here on this uh, second chapter in the book of Acts. Uh, there were Jewish males from, from all over the place, all over the Roman world. They were there gathered in Jerusalem. It was a significant feast. It, uh, the word Pentecost just means 50. It occurred 50 days after uh, the Feast of Passover. And in between these two feasts, what would happen is that there would be a great time of harvest. The, the, the field would be gleaned and, and a harvest would be brought in. And because of that, the Feast of Pentecost was sometimes called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And it was a, something of a joyous time. Uh, when the people of God would gather together with the, with, the, with, with the crops that God had given, with the bounty that God had shown uh, during the year. There's an interesting passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 16 that, that reveals to us something of the joy that was associated with the Feast of Pentecost. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 11. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, verses uh, 10 and following. We read the following. And thou shalt keep the Feast of Weeks, again, the Feast of Passover, I mean, I'm sorry, the Feast of Pentecost. Thou shalt keep the Feast of Weeks unto the Lord thy God with a tribute of a free will offering of thy hand, which thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God according as the Lord thy God has blessed thee. And in verse 11, here's what I want you to see. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God. Thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy maidservant and thy, and thy manservant and the Levite that is within thy gates and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place where the Lord God hath chosen to put his name there. And so this was to be a time of rejoicing. It was a time of great blessing. It was a time again when the people of God would be happy in the presence of one another and happy in the presence of God. Isn't that a great way to think of church? <laughs> happy in the presence of one another and happy in the presence of God. Well, by way of the work of the Spirit of God, that's what church ought to be. And so again, of course, of course it, 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 to, to be uh, that place where, where the holy people of God uh, gather one to another. We don't want to leave out that very important idea of holiness as well. Well, again, here the Feast of Pentecost, as I said, uh, was a very significant uh, Old Testament feast. But when we look at it in the New Testament, it takes on a, a very new emphasis. And that emphasis is the emphasis of empowerment. And I hope you're thrilled with the idea of being empowered by the Spirit of God to do what God has called you to do. And I say this, I, I, I look upon this gathered people of, of God, this people for whom Christ has, has paid a price. You need to understand that God has not just saved you to take you home to heaven. We're going to deal with that next week when we, when, we take, when we get back to Mark chapter 5. We're going to see that man that was possessed uh, by, 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 by demons when, when the Lord Jesus Christ frees him. The, the man just wants to go with Jesus. But Jesus sends him back. Why? Because there was a work that he had to do. When we get saved, we want to go to heaven, don't we, right away? The sooner we get to heaven, the better off we'll be, we think. But, <laughs> but God has a purpose for us. And that purpose is that you might witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in this witnessing purpose, God empowers you by way of the work of the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, do we, do you, do I, do I know, do we know that power? That empowerment of the Spirit of God. Oh, may it be ours. And that's what happens by way of the significance when we think of Pentecost. When we think of Pentecost, now we don't think so much of, a, of, a, of, a, of the Feast of Weeks. Or we don't think so much of, a, of an Old Testament feast. What we think of is we think of empowerment. The Spirit of God in the church of Jesus Christ sent by the Lord, sent by the Lord himself. Now what's interesting is that this, this, uh, this day of Pentecost now has become very significant in the, in the history of the church, as I said. But what's interesting is that we, we, we can observe in the ministry of, of our Lord Jesus Christ these great uh, intimations of the coming work of the Spirit. Uh, particularly when you get into the Gospel of John in, in, in chapters uh, 14 through 16. At that time when the Lord Jesus Christ is with his close group of disciples. And there they were, away now from the public, away now from the press of the crowd. And there they were, uh, just among themselves, and what is our Lord doing? He's preparing them for his time of departure. And so during that period, that, those few hours, he begins to speak of them. I'm sorry, he begins to speak to them of a number of things. And one great point of emphasis in that night before he was betrayed was an emphasis on the coming role of the Holy Spirit. He says this in John chapter 14. Verses 16 and 17. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. You see, Pentecost makes a difference. He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Amen. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. I think we saw something of an example of that in the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. One of the things we're going to see here shortly is this, is that by way of the empowerment of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God gives the believer the ability to interpret his days, his, his times, in light of Scripture. Amen. You see, all these things are going on. Questions are being asked. What's happening here uh, as, the, as the people see all this going in front of them? And some say one thing, some say another thing. Peter says, no, this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel. You see, it was the Spirit of God that gave him insight to interpret his times in light of Scripture. Amen. We need that, brothers and sisters. Amen. We need to be able to understand our day in light of the Word of God. And that's what was given here. And again, our Lord Jesus Christ is saying this again. He shall lead you in all truth. He shall bring things to your remembrance. John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter has come, whom I, will send to, uh, to, uh, whom I will send from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, listen to this, he shall testify of me. Now this is important when we speak of Pentecost. Why? Because Pentecost is not about us sitting around talking about the great power of the Holy Spirit. We, in a sense, we have to do that. But it's the great power of the Holy Spirit, not in a vacuum. It's the great power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ. As I said before, there's a, per there's, there's, a, there's a design to the sermon here today. There's a design to every sermon, believe it or not. It may not seem that way, but there is a design to the sermon here today. And the design is this. I want to proclaim Christ, hopefully in the power of the Spirit. And I want Christ to be proclaimed at the table as well. And I want you to see and understand that this is the purpose of the Spirit of God, to testify of Jesus Christ. 
And so when you are experienced, if I can say it this way, the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not so much talking about the Holy Spirit, you're talking about Christ. And we're going to see when Peter explains to that questioning crowd, what he does is he sets forth Jesus Christ in a number of ways. He'll set him forth in his life that he lived. He was a man approved of God. He'll set him forth in his death with some explanation as to the reason of that death. He'll set him forth in his resurrection. He'll set him forth in his exaltation and being seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, that sermon is all about Christ. It's not so much about the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not even about the work of the Holy Spirit that Peter preaches. He preaches Christ, and that's what the Spirit of God has given for us to do, to make Christ known. And so again, we see this. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you. It's necessary. It's for your well-being that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. We're going to see that as well in this sermon. Peter preaches. And you see the response of the crowd. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were, they, were, they, were, they were pierced in their hearts. Have you ever been under the preaching of the word of God and been pierced in your heart? I hope you have. This is the beginning of salvation. No salvation without, without the sinner understanding his or her need to, to come to Jesus Christ by faith, to be forgiven of his sins in the sight of a holy God. Does the thought of a holy God set you back on your heels? Can you say with the, with the writer of Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? The one, before all, the one before whom all things are naked and open? How shall we stand before this holy God? Well, you see, there's a Savior. And in the power of the Spirit of God, He's proclaimed to a lost world. Have you been pricked in your hearts to see and understand these things? I, I hope you have. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, the Lord says this, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry, but wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So on this day of Pentecost, the church was endued with power from on high. Again, I have to admit, <clears throat> I love the word endued. Uh, power is there. Power is filling up. And these men, again, this, this early, this waiting church, endued with power from on high. Now, it's interesting. It's significant by way of the theology of our understanding of the life of Christ that what we see is that there were certain things that had to happen before the Spirit of God would come in power. Uh, one of the things that we understand, again, is that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, did not send the Spirit until he was glorified. Uh, John chapter 7, it's a wonderful passage of Scripture, John chapter 7, another one of the Old Testament feasts, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it's a very, it was a, another significant feast. There was a point in the feast where, where the high priest would stand up and he would begin to, to pour out water. It was a sign of the blessings that God had given to Israel in the past year. And he would stand up and he would pour out water at that, at that time or somewhere within the vicinity of that moment. In John chapter 7, we read that Jesus stood up and with a loud voice cried out, If any man thirst, imagine standing up in the middle of this service right now and say, If any man thirst, well, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Why? Because the feast pointed to him and he knew it. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And what does John say? But this he spake of the Spirit which was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. Christ had to be glorified before the Spirit was sent down. And so 40 days after uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, he ascends to heaven. The ascension of the Lord, I, I, I almost, uh, I'm, almost, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm almost somewhat regretful 
that this past year we didn't consider the doctrine of the ascension. So it's a wonderful doctrine to consider as we see it there in, and both in, uh, in Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. In Luke chapter 24, we have a, a perspective, and both Luke and, and, and the book of Acts, they're both written by, by Luke, but the perspective there is interesting to see as we bring them together. You remember in Acts chapter 1, uh, the disciples were standing there, and the Lord Jesus Christ was taken up from their, from their presence, and the angel comes and says, Men of, men of Galilee, why stand ye looking up into heaven? And again, they, uh, the angel tells them that, this, uh, that Jesus shall come in like manner. But in Luke 24, it's a little different. In Luke chapter 24, when we see the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, it goes along these lines. And as he blessed them, he was taken up to heaven. The ascension of Jesus Christ is marked by the blessing of Christ on his church. And when Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father, 40 days after the resurrection, now 10 days after the ascension, what does the exalted Christ do? He sends down blessing on his church. The descent of the Spirit of God is the great blessing of Jesus Christ to his church. It's the great gift. It's the great promise of the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of the Father. And so all this happens. Here is the Lord again, now at the right hand of God the Father. This is another thing that we, that we uh, again, sometimes don't emphasize enough. It's, it's important by way of our, our theological understanding of Christ. And let me say this. I, I hope you never, um, I hope you never um, have a, a, any kind of a, of a, of a devaluing of the, of the doctrinal realities concerning the person of Christ. And what I mean by that is this. I hope you never fall into the fact of saying, hey, look, you know, I don't care what it's all about. I just, you know, I, I, just, I just love Jesus. I hope you love Jesus. I just love Jesus and I just want to know that I'm going to heaven. There's more to the Christian life than that. I'm telling you, the more you know about your exalted Lord, the deeper your worship and your appreciation and your love for him will be. And when you take a look at this exaltation of Jesus Christ, it's a wonderful doctrine. It's this idea now that the, that the Father himself raises up Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting when you look in the scriptures that the, that the resurrection of, of our Lord is, is, is attributed to every member of the Trinity. Uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus has the power to raise himself from the dead. He is the Lord of life. He's the Prince of life. Death can't hold him. The scripture also says that he was raised by the power of the Spirit. But most often in the scripture, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is attributed to the Father. And that's significant because what it shows us is this, is that Jesus Christ, again, in obedience to the Father, is not just breaking out of death on his own, but it's an act of the Father raising the Son. And when the Father raises up the Son, there is a sense in which he is now crowning or vindicating everything that Jesus said and everything that he taught. How do you know that Jesus is God's approved man? More than a man. But how do you know that Jesus is God's approved man? He raised them up from the dead. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. God made a statement when he raised Jesus from the dead. I like to say it like this. I've not preached from Romans 1 here, but I've preached Romans 1 in other places. And I like to say this about that passage in Romans 1, verses 4 and 5. On the resurrection Sunday, God preached the sermon. He declared Jesus to be the Son of God. And in that raising up from the dead, what did he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Line up everybody in human history. Who do you want to stand next to? I'm standing next to Jesus of Nazareth. The one who God vindicated by way of the resurrection. 
You see this resurrection, this this exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so now Jesus Christ sending down uh, his spirit at at the right hand of the Father. Well, that brings us right to the point of our sermon now, right to the point of Peter's sermon. And what I want you to see in this passage of Scripture, once again, how that the Spirit of God empowers Peter to preach Christ. Peter doesn't talk about the phenomena. Much phenomena was there. Many, there, there was a lot of, I don't know the plural, the plural there, but there was, there was much there by way of phenomena. And what do we see? We see this rushing mighty wind. We see these, uh, these cloven tongues of fire. We hear these languages being spoken. And it's interesting because each of these things, and particularly the tongues and the, and, and the wind, are, are, both of these are, are references, not so much references, but they're used in the Old Testament to signify the presence of God. So that when God is made present in human circumstances, it's not unusual to have some manifestation of either wind or excuse me, some manifestation of power. So we see that here. There's a sense in which when we see this phenomena, it's a, it's a proof, it's a mark of the, of the divine nature of the Spirit of God. It's God coming to his people. It's wonderful. I also think there's something else kind of very significant here that is oftentimes overlooked. Uh, and that's the fact that in John chapter 20, verses 20 through 23, uh, there was a time before our Lord ascends and he, 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 he gives the, the, the waiting church something of a portion of the Spirit of God. Very interesting. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ has his gathered disciples. And when, he, when they're together, he, he says to them, he says, he says, peace unto you. He speaks a word of peace to them. And then he says, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. And then he does this. He breathes on them. And he says, receive you the Holy Spirit. He literally, receive you the Holy Spirit. Very interesting. I can't help but wondering. The breath of Jesus as he's here on earth. Are we now seeing the breath of the exalted Lord with the coming rushing mighty wind? What's the question? But our Lord Jesus Christ, again, empowering the phenomena. But Peter doesn't spend time on the phenomena. He doesn't say, oh, look how wonderful the Holy Spirit is. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit this and the Holy Spirit that. He preaches Christ. Because that is the ministry of the Spirit of God. To enable the church of Jesus Christ to proclaim Christ. And Peter does this in a number of ways. Look here now at verses 22 and 24 of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Peter says this, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourself also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Here, Peter sets forth the person of Christ. And please hear me and understand that this is the great task of the church. If somebody should ever ask you, what is the task of the church? While the church has many things that are secondary to its its calling, its primary calling is to set forth Christ. Should we be an agent of good in the world? Yes, of course. Should we seek to to alleviate the uh, difficulties and hardship? Of course we should. Should we speak for those who have no voice? Yes, we must. But the primary task of the church of Jesus Christ is to preach Christ. And that's what Peter does. Men and brethren, Jesus Christ, a man approved of God. 
And so what I want you to see is, 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 is Peter uh, preaches uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before, he sets forth Christ in a number of ways. The first thing he does is he sets forth Christ by way of the life that he lived. By way of the life that he lived. Oh, what a life that he lived. It was a life that was approved of God by miracles and by signs. And again, we might say this. This is something that we should be aware of whenever we ask the questions. Or, or how do we understand miracles in our day? Well, again, miracles had a validating purpose. And, they, and they, again, they validated the message of Christ, even as they validated the message of the preaching of the apostles. And there was this validation by way of these signs. And when you look at this, uh, this, this life that Jesus lived, this is incorporated in much if not all, of course it's incorporated in all, of the, of the preaching of, uh, of the church concerning Christ. Listen to Acts chapter 10, verse 38. There's Peter preaching again, and he says this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, now listen to this, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. You see, when you go to speak to your friends about Jesus Christ, you can speak of the life that he lived. And this life that he lived was a life wherein he addressed himself to the needs of humanity. This is a life that he lived in order that he might live a perfect life in the sight of God so that his death would have this value, this saving value. <clears throat> but Peter preaches him, as I said before. Peter preaches uh, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And two things about this life. Number one, in his life, he gave evidence that he was approved of God. We saw that already. But the second thing I want you to see about his life is that not only was he approved of God, sadly he was rejected by men. Amen. You took by wicked hands and crucified and slain. And you see, this thing is still going on in our day as well. Jesus Christ is still approved of God. Can I say it this way? Your presence here, your conversion, your knitting of, the heart, of your heart to, the, to, to, to Jesus Christ is a proof that again, God is still working in and through him. But men are still rejecting him, are they not? It reminds us of the passage of scripture in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. He came into the world. He came to his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on, your who believe on his name. Where do you stand in that passage of scripture? That's, that passage of scripture, again, is, is, is pointed to you. To as many as received him. To them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Do you believe on his name? Amen. Do you believe on it? Again, this is the thing. What kind of a preacher would I be if I didn't press you with this issue right now? Do you believe on his name? You see, we can talk about the spirit of God, and we can talk about Christian growth, and we must. And we can talk about doing good, and we must. But do you believe on his name? You see, this is the thing. And so again, the Lord Jesus Christ, again, he, he is still we, can still, we can still set him forth by way of the life that he lived. <clears throat> again, he was accepted by God. He went about doing good, for God was with, was with him. And again, he was rejected uh, by, uh, by those of his own day. But the second thing that we see Peter doing is that Peter preached not only the life that he lived, but the death that he died. Look here in verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken him by wicked hands of crucified and slain. I know this passage of scripture is used, rightly so, to enter into that very difficult uh, question as to how do we understand God's absolute sovereignty, God's good and wise ordering of all events and all history and the personal decisions of men. We can't always understand this. We can't always fully explain this. But what we, what we have to do is this. Is we have to see how that the scripture is very much at ease with setting these two truths side by side. 
So it never shies away from saying that God is the one who orders all events. Neither does it shy away from saying that individuals are culpable and responsible for the decisions they make. And Peter is able to say to this group, by way of the forward nation of God, you took and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And what we see in the scripture, it's very interesting that this is a, something of a repeated theme uh, in the book of Acts and the preaching of the apostles. Now, Peter mentions it again in, in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, he talks about this same idea of God's purposes, God, God's preordained purposes. He does it again in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. And so this idea, again, is something that, that, the, that the, disciples, <coughs> excuse me, the disciples never shy away from. <clears throat> and if I can say, neither should we. This should be a part and part of our, of our, of our preaching. You, you understand that the, the, the God before whom you stand, this isn't the most, uh, the most sophisticated way of saying it, but this God before who you and I stand, can I say it as simple as this? He's a big God. Amen. He's the God with whom we have to deal. Mm-hmm. And the scripture never shies away from that. Mm-hmm. The scripture never presents God as somehow holding back and somehow not this. And no, God is God. You have responsibilities and you have decisions to make. You have a life that's being lived. You have a destiny that's being formed. And all these things come to bear. And Peter is able to say that the death that he died was a death that was ordained by God because because a Savior must shed his blood. Because the Lamb of God must shed his blood in order for sinners to be saved. It was ordained by God. God. But your response to that, oh, you see, your response is very, very important here. Well, you see, the, the death of Jesus Christ is, is set forth in Scripture, not merely as a fact of history, it's that. But it's a, if I can say it this way, it's not only a fact of history, it's a fact of theology. What do I mean by that? That the death of Jesus Christ is, is, is given to us in the Scripture from a particular perspective. And that perspective is not the death of a man who was victimized. Uh, the perspective is not the death of a man who thought he was a martyr. Uh, the, 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 the perspective is not uh, of a man who was just caught up in events that, that, that got beyond him and before he knew it, uh, he was there hanging on the cross. That's not how the scriptures explain the death of Christ. His death was not a senseless death. His death was and is a saving death. Isn't this the emphasis of scripture? Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, there's, there's meaning there. There's interpretation there. It wasn't just a death. It was a death for us. He goes on to say then to this, uh, verse 9, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You see another interpretive element here about the death of Christ. His death is a death that saves us from the wrath of God. There is a reality of the wrath of God. Oftentimes we don't want to talk about it in the day and age in which we live. We think such things are barbaric, but they're not. God's holiness is so pure and so right that he must react against all that which is contrary to his holy nature. And so again, his death is a saving death. And then Paul goes on to say this, to show the extent of, uh, to show the extent of, of this love of God. Verse 10, for when we were enemies, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, this death of Jesus Christ is a death that has great implications. It wasn't, as I said before, it wasn't a senseless death. It is a saving death. And that's how the death of Jesus Christ is put forth in Scripture. As, the fact of, uh, as a fact of history, yes. But as a fact of theology as well, a saving death, Jesus died. 
Peter doesn't stop there. Neither can we stop there when we preach the gospel. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we, 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 we interact with our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers maybe, and we tell them that, that Jesus died for you. This is good. We, we need to do this. But the scripture doesn't stop there. Not only was Jesus put to death for our sins, he was raised again from the dead. Peter, Peter mentions this. Look what he says here in verse 24. He says, whom God has raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I said before, the vindication of all that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught. It is wonderful to see what Peter says. It was not possible that he should be holding by death. Why is it not possible? Because Jesus is life itself. First, I'm sorry, John 1 verse 4. In him was the life and the life was the light of man. He's the prince of life. He's the creator of all things. He's the origin and the source of life. Death couldn't hold him. I love the picture. It's, it, again, it's not a very sophisticated picture, but when when uh, death walked up to Jesus and gave him his best, and gave him his sin walked up to Jesus, gave, gave Jesus his best punch. And Jesus got up again. There he is, victorious. I don't want to get I don't want to get carried away here, but there he is, victorious. It's not possible that that death should hold Jesus. It's not possible because because of the character of God. In Psalm 16, verse 10, Peter will be preaching from Psalm 16 here shortly. As a matter of fact, there are, uh, there are a number of, there are three passages that Peter preaches from. I didn't even mention that, but let me say this. This is how we witness. We, we witness from the scripture. A faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when Peter preaches this Pentecostal sermon, what does he do? He incorporates Joel 2.28. And through 32, he incorporates Psalm 16. He incorporates Psalm 110. All of these, again, Peter is giving a biblical ex exposition of the person of Christ empowered by the Spirit of God. It's a, it's a wonderful, it, it is the pattern that the church must follow. And you and I must follow it in our personal interaction. We can't witness apart from the Word of God. You may not want to bring something of Scripture to bear in the conversation, but if, it, if, if you're witnessing, you have to. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You know that we all of your witnessing must, you know, it, the, the, the purpose of it, the goal, the hope is that it leads to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, faith can't come around uh, apart, from, apart from the preaching or proclamation of the word. So we give the word of God. It was not possible because he's life himself. It was not possible because of God's character. God promised that he would raise him from the dead. And it was not possible because Jesus himself said that he would be raised from the dead. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, as he, gets, as he gets ready to go to Jerusalem, he says that the Son of Man must be killed and be raised again the third day. So what we see here is again the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter doesn't stop there either. We have not only the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have, we have his exaltation as well. Look at verses 33 through 36. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this. There is Christ in his exaltation. This is a very important element of uh, an aspect of the, uh, of, of the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ, his, his, his present session at the right hand of the Father. Uh, I, I, I hope you have those who you know can, will pray for you in times of difficulty. No friend like a praying friend, right? Uh, those who we know that we can go to uh, in times of need. Uh, you know who the Christian's uh, best friend in prayer is? It's none other than Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to make intercession. He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. And that's a function. That's a function of his ongoing ministry as high priest. 
Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for you. He's praying for, the, he's praying for, for, you, for you and I in, in, in this very ser- service. He's praying, as the, he's praying for the preacher as the word is going forth. He's praying for the hearers as the word is being received. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying. He's interceding this wonderful aspect of the ongoing ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. But something else that we see here again, he sends down the Holy Spirit. This exalted Christ sends down gifts to his church. And the great gift that he gives to this church is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And all the and, and by way of the gift of the Holy Spirit, every other gift of the by way of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of Christ is primary, and every other gift is vital and as essential as they are in the church, and they are, but they're all to be subsumed or be prioritized under the gift of the empowerment to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. You see, Pentecost is more about the proclamation of Christ than it is about the person of the Holy Spirit. But we don't need to separate them. They work together. And they work together in a way to where Christ is preached and proclaimed. And so this is what we see. But we see the presence of the Spirit of God not only empowering uh, Peter, we also see the presence of the Spirit of God in convicting hearts. It's, 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 it's wonderful to see. We, we pray that we would see this in our day. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were, they, were, they were pinned in a sense. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to turn. No argumentation could get them out of this. No, no reasoning could get them around this. They were caught in this very real sense, flat-footed, and they have to say, Men and brethren, what, what shall we do? You see, this is the convicting work of the Spirit of God going on. How does the convicting work of the Spirit of God take place? It takes place under the ministry of spirit-empowered preaching, of spirit-empowered proclamation, whether it's in a pulpit, whether it's across a table one for another, spirit-empowered proclamation, whether it's in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, proclaiming the death of our Lord. And so this, this work of the Spirit, they were pricked in their hearts. Again, it reminds us, as we said earlier, of John 16, verse 8, when He has come, He will prove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But notice what Peter does. Notice how Peter handles this. He's not so much concerned with the fragileness or the fragility of their, uh, of their emotional state. He's not so much concerned that he doesn't, uh, that he doesn't uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, just stamp on, you know, stomp on their, their kind of uh, uncertainty here. But what, they, what does he do? He goes right to the point in verse 38. And Peter said unto them, Repent! be baptized look when 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 you're up against it so to speak when the word of god has exposed sin when we find ourselves again before this holy god what do we do repentance is always seasonable you understand there is never a time when repentance isn't the necessary response and so in and through the preaching of the word, these individuals are pricked to the heart. And what does Peter do? He doesn't say, don't worry about it. God is a God of love. God has changed. He's not as mad as sin as he once was. He doesn't say that at all. He says, repent and be converted. Repent and be baptized. Now we have to see something here and understand baptism in the early church was in one sense the very expression of faith. We don't say that you have to uh, repent and then believe and then be baptized. Again, baptism, again, was the expression of faith. If you ask a person, uh, did they believe? And they would say yes, and that, that belief would have been shown by way of their baptism. 
And so baptism was the very, was the very thing that expresses uh, the element of faith. And so Peter presses this upon them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. But I love this as well. Peter holds out the continuing blessings of God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. And, re- and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You see, this gift of the Holy Ghost, this empowerment, isn't just reserved to some small class of Christians. This is, again, the gift that Christ has given to the entire church. And so Peter preaches in a way where he calls upon them to repent. He calls upon them for faith. He, he, he deals with them as the sinners that they are. But he, he doesn't leave them in, in, in a state of uncertainty by way of their sin. He points them to Jesus Christ. The last thing that he does here is very important, though, and it's a, needed, it's a needed point for our day, and it's this. In verse 40, or actually I should say this, when, when he speaks about, verses 38 and 39, when he speaks about the ongoing blessings, he speaks about how that the gospel is to, is to our loved ones as well as to us. That, our, that the gospel is to those who are near and those who are far off. That this gospel is an ever-going gospel, we might say. That's what we see there in verse 39. For the promises unto you and your children and all that are far off. Oh, what a blessed thing. There's children here today. We don't always have children. There's children here today. And the promises unto you and your children. And we thank God for that. But notice what else, notice what else Peter says here in verse 40. And this is very appropriate for our day. Notice what Peter says here. And with, any, and with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. Some translations say, save yourself from this perverse generation. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Save yourself again from this corrupt generation. If there's any part of this message which is needed in our day, and every part of this message is needed in our day, we must be about the business of saving ourselves from this corrupt generation. If we're shocked by the sin of our generation, how does God see these things? If our sins cause us us to blush, what does it do in the sight of God? And when when we look to be saved from this untoward generation, we do it in the way that the Old Testament prophets did. We identify with the fact that we ourselves are guilty of sin also. It's not just those sinners out there and those sinners down the road. It's this individual right here that has to deal with sin. You see, this untoward generation. So here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is the descent of the Spirit of God on this blessed day of Pentecost. And what's Pentecost all about? It's not about the phenomena. It's about the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So Christ has just been presented to you from the scriptures. And it's my hope and my prayer that each and every one of us, each and every one of you will join us in this table. Here we will be be observing the Lord's death in the table. It's interesting that when you look at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, some of you have heard me say this before, that the symbols of the Lord's Supper are designed to speak. They don't speak audibly, but they speak visibly. If I can say it this way, what I've offered you in the preaching of the gospel to your ear, the table will offer to you in the presentation of the death of Christ to your eye. The elements will not become Christ, but they will signify to you a dying Savior 
They will signify to you blood that was shed in order to be cleansed from sin. They will signify to you spiritual nourishment. You see, the, the ordinance pictures what the gospel, the ordinance pictures in symbol what the gospel promises in words. You see, the church is all about proclaiming Jesus Christ. What good are we if we don't proclaim him? Let us pray.